I think that we get a little bit bogged down in everything that's happening in the world. And, and the reality is that, you know, just kind of do what makes you happy and where your job is. And, and um, you can have more, you can have, from my experience in supply chains, you can have more impact as the cattle trader that is trading two animals a week um, than you can by talking about the sustainability issues because, or the, the price of grain because of what's happening in the Ukraine. G'day and welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I have to confess, I'm sitting in my car on the side of the road recording this intro, but this episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people and Pacho is coming to us from Singapore. I'd like to extend my respects to any Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening to the Humans of Agriculture podcast and pay my respects to your elders past, present and emerging. This episode has been sponsored by LAWD, the Specialists in Agribusiness Valuations and Transactions. To find out more, head to www.lawd.com.au. Well, guys, I hope you guys enjoy this chat as much as what I did. Pacho is a ripping bloke. He's had so many life experiences. He's travelled the world uh, pursuing a footy career and a vet career second. It's taken him literally across the world from New Zealand to Asia to Europe. Japan um, and now he finds himself in Singapore working in his own consulting business after doing a stint with Meat and Livestock Australia um, in the animal welfare space. Pacho shares a little bit more about his experiences traveling and getting experience through just seeing more of the world. He spent more time living out of Australia than in it but he absolutely loves Australia, he loves animals and he's so passionate about increasing animal welfare globally. I think what I loved about Pacho was when I asked what's the impact that he's trying to have on the world, he just talked about shifting the dial just a tiny little bit. He says that his life is a big journey of contradictions, but he's certainly been doing what makes him happy. You'll listen to the two of us talk about everything from trying and running our own little businesses, having a yarn about fumbling our way through it, but being curious about the role agriculture plays in the world around us. Pacho has spent his career in a variety of roles as a vet. He's worked across the live export industry, he's worked on point of slaughter animal welfare across Asia, and he studied his masters in international animal welfare out of Edinburgh University. He's certainly incredibly qualified and someone who I reached out to just in the last few days. With the whole foot and mouth disease piece, I was trying to understand a little bit more about what's happening from his perspective and what's happening on the ground. So keep your eyes peeled as I think I'll be doing and having a bit more to do with Pacho in the coming weeks just to try and get a bit more information over what it means for us what's happening but in the meantime enjoy this chat and what has been Pacho's life so far you know I've actually described myself to other people as as um uh you know that the Hulk type image where I come across as this calm collected guy but basically it's just this ball of energy sitting by the surface surface completely at every time um with a heap of nerves going on and and uh try to try to maintain uh normality um uh and then just release the monster monster when needed um, uh, just the duck going flat out and then just yeah, take off yeah except <laughs> except and and I don't know if this gonna gonna jump ahead for some questions at all but I've, I've got a six-year-old son and and uh Kids are amazing at at really bringing out, um, you know, your biggest weakness. To be honest, uh, I'm not sure if you got have you got kids, Ollie. At no, all, or? not yet. No, so well, lots so, of times my old boss used to joke that 
idea that I just didn't know where they were. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the one that I'm aware of, the one kid that I'm aware of, uh, who, who lives with me, is very good at, at making me very acutely aware of all of my deficiencies and inadequacies as well as um, because he'll then start doing them. He'll start doing those actions himself and you're like, oh, stop doing that. And then you realise that the only reason he's doing it is because that's how I act and what I do. Um, and then and the other side is when you're stressed or tired or whatever, you can, again, really, really see it expressed through the way you're interacting with the kid or how the kid's, kid's behaving, interacting back with you. So they're a pretty... They're a pretty good uh, sort of tester as to to how you are and and what state you're in, um, which is is kind of nice because it's a pretty like it's an early warning system that you need to need to change something. So would you say since since you've had him, was well, he six years old now? Yeah, yeah. Would you say you've got like a far greater self awareness of how you're behaving and how you're kind of showing up? It's look, so it's hard to know. I've I'm. Be- I feel like as you get older, you become more, I do at least become more self-aware of all of my um, weaknesses anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and maybe some of that will come out in some of our stories. But, um, yeah, it definitely, definitely does make you more or does def- has made me more aware of, um, I can really only talk for myself, has definitely made me more aware of, uh, of my uh, of who I am, um, and and again, as I was saying, what sort of state I'm in, and and uh, yeah, yeah, to that point, like I'm, I like to try to be present as much as I can um, in in whatever I'm doing, and uh, and yeah, that's really difficult when you when you're stressed and got five things on your mind, and you're thinking about work or uh, over COVID, it was obviously challenging when the kids are at home and you're you're distracted by them, but you really want to focus on what you're doing at work, but you know mm. what? The kids are more important, and so you're like, "Well, I'd rather actually be spending more time and playing, playing cars with him, or or playing footy at the park or something." And and uh, and so trying to balance that's also uh, like a massive challenge constantly. And are you a one man show as well with your business? Uh, yeah, sort of. Um, well, that's <laughs> so. I've set up a. A consulting business uh, 12 months ago at the height of Delta. I left Meat and Livestock Australia, um, uh, who was sort of regional manager for up here in Asia um, in, in about March or February or so. I, I quit. And then by the time that that sort of time period had lapsed, it was April when I finally left. And April was pretty much exactly the day that uh, as I left, as I walked out of the office of, of MLA and handed in the keys, they... Uh, the Delta strain really started hitting the region. And my big um, thing was to, to really kind of get out there and be that link with Australia into Asia and, you know, scale up ag tech or, or just use my networks to connect people in more efficient ways to break down some barriers. And look, I kind of love disrupting and change a bit. Um, so I was kind of keen to get out there and, and be involved in, in some of that and, and, Delta hit and basically uh, made me have to reassess everything. So I ended up forming all these partnerships, these collaborations with with other people, but nobody's on the same journey. And um, because we're not on the same, because we're all on different imperfect journeys, mm. uh, it's really hard to find people that you are you are absolutely aligned to to want to deliver with them. And um, especially during that period where I kind of had no other choice. I formed a lot of relationships and, and uh, tried to collaborate with um, people that 
were very unnatural um, partners to, to collaborate with. And uh, it mostly went okay, but the little bits that it didn't go okay, it made it really challenging. So the short answer to your question, and I, I, sorry, I don't ever give short answers, Ollie, but the, the short <laughs> answer to your question is, yes, I am basically by myself, but I've, I've, I really lean into the networks that I have to yeah. like, not just, not just uh, link up with, but to try to work with them so that it kind of dissipates that load across other people. But then you end up just managing all these other people that aren't actually in your business, which mm. is actually probably more, more difficult than just having a big team sitting under me. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I started like, I, what am I now? Five weeks out on my own. Um, and like I've started just a note section in my phone of just like lessons from running your own business. I've got four lessons so far, but it's even only like, four. Well, it's four <laughs> that I've, I've written down. They're, like there's just so many. And it's like such a different, such a different world. Like it's when people talk about like the emotions and the waves you go on, like I think it might have, oh, it was last week. And I was like, oh, this week's going pretty good. I feel like I'm kind of in control. And we had a long weekend. I ended up traveling. I spent like 15 hours in the car to go catch up with mates, came back, chasing my tail all week. It was like, oh my God, like you just, it's, it, it is so quick, like how, how quick the tide changes where you're like, oh, this is going pretty good to being like, I actually don't know what I've done this week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it obviously goes the other way too. And, and it's, um, I, yeah, it, it continually blows. That feels like one day for me, to be honest, Ollie. Mm. But uh, yeah. uh, the the learning, the probably the, the the one of the biggest learning I've had is how nobody knows what they're doing. To be honest, like that, and and I'm not really on social media. It's been a good LinkedIn has been a really great thing for me to connect with people, and it's the reason I'm connected with you today. But at the same time, you know that drug of social media where you're scrolling through, and then I need to. I need to be able to say, wait a minute, am I doing this to, you know, broaden my network and connect with people that are relevant to me or am I on this because they've addicted me to this and, and, and I'm stuck on it yeah. um, and, and to try to detach those two because it just becomes a time waster. Uh, so th- there's sort of that, but, but through being on LinkedIn and any social media, um, it's really difficult because you see all these people mostly succeeding and, that's not the reality deep down. Nobody's really succeeding in anything. Absolutely They're just not. trying to get through. And nobody's everything, right? Like nobody can be a good person manager as well as a as have the finite detail to do their bookkeeping correctly and to uh, have the time to to find new staff to support you to, to be able to do your business and the marketing and um and uh yeah, so it's 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 super challenging. It, the very beginning, but I think all through business, but yeah, right out really hard because even the role that I'm doing as a, as a consultant, consultancy is super easy because you just go into other people's business and just tell them what you think they should be doing. Yeah. And then you walk away again or you write your little report and somebody doesn't read it and, and uh, you get paid and, and that's the end of the job. Um, <laughs> and and what I'm, the I'm really, yeah. What I'm really trying to do is move away from that to actually be able to have impact and, um, that really means sort of, I guess, to what we're saying before about your networks and who's under you at the moment and how, how are you working in market, it, it just becomes challenging because if you don't have full control about what's going on around you, it's it's really challenging to be able to um, actually have impact yeah, because you mm. don't own the animals or you don't own the abattoir or you don't, you know, you're not in charge of putting the feed out. Um, 
So yeah, when you're running your own business, it's yeah, it's this constant battle between I'm free to be able to make of this whatever I want to make of this. And you know, it's really great that I'm I'm doing what what my passion is, but also trying to balance that with I'm actually not capable of doing what I'm what I want to do, at yeah. least in my head. <laughs> oh so speaking of scrolling, and it's you come through little like nuggets. Anyway, a bloke who's been on the podcast before. New Zealand fella, Reese Roberts, and he's just been doing this Santa McDonald trip around New Zealand. And he was saying like one of, so he just did his full lessons that he learned. And one of them was that the best businesses he's met are always throwing one meter and they just keep focusing on throwing one meter instead of trying to f- throw 25. And I reckon that's such a, such a thing I'm learning is like, how do you, like the world's this big and this is where you could be, but then it's like, where's that next step? How do you just kind of, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I look and, and I think it's it, it still is throw the one meter and then I think it's throw the one meter forwards and go for like this is my probably take on what you just said that I've never heard that before but no, throw your one, one meter forward one meter forward but I would then I personally probably then just have a have like a circle around me at that point or a circle around maybe that point that I've got to so that you're aware of the 500 other decisions that you could make from then um, and be open to all of them so that you can then work out which direction you want to throw throw the next one. The, the challenge mm. with that is that you can easily start going around in circles pretty quickly because uh, uh, yeah. you, you don't, your head's down the whole time. You're only throwing one metre ahead. And then if you look up at the end, uh, for better or worse, to be honest, um, and there's, I'm not saying this is correct or not correct, but mm. you can work out the year back where you started from, which which is there's probably nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah. well, that's just a journey, isn't it? It doesn't matter if it's a circular one or a, a linear one. Um, lots of learnings along the way, which I'm, that's a, I, better, I better get writing into my notes on my phone because <laughs> <laughs> there's been a lot more lessons than before. But so, <laughs> so you're in Singapore now. How, how and why did you end up choosing Singapore as your base? I, I definitely... Probably choice is a very, very loose, loose uh, description of, of getting to Singapore. Singapore is a beautiful country, uh, really well organised. It's a, it's kind of the Australia of Asia, to be honest, and there's plenty of Australians up here. Um, uh, we call it expat for beginners up here because it's, it's kind of like that everyone comes up to, to Singapore and thinks that they're living this expat life and they're, you know, but to be honest, they're not. It's just, this is yeah. just so easy, the bureaucracy. Um but my, it's probably easier if I go forwards with the journey. Ollie, uh, look, I'm a, a veterinarian from Perth, grew up in the city, um, didn't have an agricultural background, went into to veterinary, veterinary medicine as a, as a kid thinking I was going to become a dog, dog and cat vet, um, uh, probably own a practice um, in, in the city somewhere in Perth and, and grow up around my family. And like I had that really sort of really clear image in my head uh, when I was, when I was probably in year 10 um, uh, and uh, and it, it sort of made sense. And then I don't know why, I think it was the the, the cat hair or something in the, the clinics when I was doing practice, but uh, I needed, I worked out, I needed to get out of, out of practices and, and do large animal work. I got some allergies. I think I developed allergies or I just think the, the being confined in, in small animal practice probably wasn't really for me. Um, uh, I don't mind the outdoors too much, uh, even though I'm a city boy. So I, I, uh, I think that was the large animal practice was always my calling. Um, so I, I actually had to venture over to New Zealand. So I play rugby. I'm from Perth, but weirdly play rugby. And uh, so I kind of followed rugby first and, and then found a practice after that. Um, 
I worked down the very bottom of the South Island, New Zealand, doing veterinary practice at a, at a clinic uh, in a 500-person town, um, which was uh, uh, in Edendale, which is there's a dairy factory there. So mostly mostly dairy practice with some some sheep work uh, sort of with it, some consultancy work there. So really, really kind of enjoyed and thrived down there. It just happens to be the most isolated place in the world. So it probably wasn't going to be where I ended up, um, but but beautiful Beautiful place and an amazing experience uh, to just get out of get out of home, get away from people. And before I left, I, this this whole journey actually talking to you has been quite interesting because I've done some really like reflection back in, in life and uh, some some things that I'd forgotten have sort of come back up to me. But I, I do remember when I, I first left um, uh, Western Australia, uh, one of the older boys in the rugby club uh, said. Look, Pacho, when you when you go out, um, when you go to a new country, you can basically just be whoever you want to be at this stage. So when I was in the rugby club, I had, I had a very nickname you always wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I already had that nickname, but uh, <laughs> I could I could maintain it. Yeah, exactly. But you can do the nickname you want. You can you can shed all of the you know any sort of um, personal preconceptions as well as as you know the the ones that your friends and and people around you had, had put on you. And I kind of have sort of embraced that for the rest of my life and I've moved country quite a few times if I ever get to the rest of the story. And uh, um, it's kind of been something that I've tried to do almost every time I've moved is, is say, right, I liked who I was there and there was some good parts and let's try to take, try, take that and then try to be a better person or be the different person that, that I want to be when I move. Anyway, so I, I left, left um, I, I was in New Zealand, loved that experience, did some work in Ireland at a donkey sanctuary again with rug following rugby to Ireland. Um, I got to just sort of do my semi pro pro thing there, which um, it sounds on paper, everything in life sounds on paper better than it actually was. It was at a rugby, little rugby, not a, a non rugby town um, in country Ireland. So they they did hurling and other GAA sports and didn't really play rugby. So I was, I was the only foreigner in town. Um, and uh, which was great. And I, I love being a, a bit of a fish out of water sometimes. So th- that was really good. Understood probably half of the chat that they had, um, but it was, <laughs> it was a great time. Yeah, again, another really, really good time there. And then kind of after that, uh, I just started traveling. I traveled through China and Asia, not to do with anything, not, not with rugby or, or, uh, or girls at, th- at this stage, but um, yeah, just, just traveled for quite some time, finished that journey overland from China all through all the sand countries um, into or through Mongolia and then uh, overland hitchhikes through Georgia and Armenia and then then into Turkey and and that was that was I guess one of those at the time I was 27 and that was that was my coming of age type trip I guess uh, sitting on in Mongolia you know by myself at the top of rocks naked writing my memoirs and and everything and did I look back on and think how innocent and stupid I was at the time. But uh, uh, it was just, just one of those really great experiences to, to kind of to do. And, and I would encourage anybody that gets any opportunity ever to, to just travel. Um, I've obviously lived a very fortunate life with money and, and time and other things that, that I can. But if anybody gets the opportunity to travel, then, yeah, get off the, get off the main road as much as you can and, and just try to, try to experience that. Um, would probably be a big one. What was the driver hit? Was it was it just an interest in like you'd lived kind of the the footy life? You'd 
worked in all these different and cool places? Was it just that you wanted to just go and yeah, explore? It's, it's really, I'd probably agree with with the guy that's saying he lives five meters five meters ahead. Was, that was pretty much where it was at. I, I, so, I had lived such a privileged privileged life. I had a beautiful, wonderful, supportive parents, and obviously got to become a vet and go through that and and could earn some money. And it was kind of you know like I'm a white male from Australia. Um, I don't really have that much much uh, adversity in my life, to be honest. And um, I think it was just trying to push myself a little bit harder to get outside of that comfort zone was really what what mm. drove that. I, I thought I was doing that when I was about 20. I went to, to Europe, but it, all I ended up doing was without being on the Kentucky circuit, I uh, just kind of did that Kentucky tour from capital city to capital city and didn't feel like I'd really pushed myself at all because... I really only hang out with hung out with uh, other other Australians or, or um, my friends while I was there. So this was a sort of a chance to to do that. And I did a similar trip in in South America with a friend as well. Um, who, uh, uh, yeah, and and so that was both of those trips were were really important for different reasons. It, it sort of sent me different stage in my life just to to get out and and see the world and the world's interesting because the, every country is different and has its nuances and um you know we're all individuals and all of that but i think that's the big take home that in every country we're all just individuals and we're impacted by our mm. culture and how we're brought up but at the end of the day we're just people and and people are people um they care about all the same things they may act differently because of the regulations that they're surrounding them or or the the type of food that they're served or or whatever it is that they've been exposed to. But uh, at the end of the day, we're just, we're all just people. Yeah. No, and, and I think that's the thing which like, fascinates me with Ag. And it's where this real journey kind of started with Humans of Ag was around, like I, I'd been to South Africa and like, we were just, we were just traveling through and probably like fairly similar upbringing to you, minus that had the dream to be a vet, but didn't get the marks. And <laughs> yeah, I think that probably sums me up pretty well. Uh, <laughs> but just like the perspective to see, like other countries and I'd been and looked at through study tours like ag in New Zealand, ag in China, bits and pieces in Indo, but not a whole lot. And then South Africa kind of was just like, wow, like the people who were, well, one, one taxi driver in particular who was driving us around, he's a Zimbabwean fella and he's like, he was just driving the taxi. So he could afford to buy a block of land, have some livestock, grow his own crops, etc. Like that was his life ambition. And I was like, holy hell, like, yeah, like he people are doing it, particularly in ag, like they're just doing it at a different scale. But here at like the the conversations we were having in Australia were like, I don't know, plant-based meat's gonna overtake red meat, blah, blah, blah. Like it's the biggest threat that's happening to our industry. And over there it was like, actually, you know what the the bloke's dream is to be a subsistence farmer. And that's what contentment looks like to him. And it was just like the piece where it was like far out if you can get outside your bubble there's so much to learn from others yeah and i think and i think we get in our bubble a little bit like especially as australians and i've i need to put my hand up i've lived more of my life outside of australia and i have inside australia so i'm a like a pseudo australian or australian by birth um at this stage but uh um <laughs> i can look back at it and i can look when i go visit there and and i think um Elements, elements of ag, or especially in ag, I'm not really sure uh, the, the correct um, sort of description there. But we do tend to get sort of bogged down in 
the, the world a little bit. Uh, we sort of do both. Like, I, and this is a complexity when I was thinking about this conversation with you, Ollie, was that everything I had, I like contradicted myself in the next sentence as I was thinking it because I think that we get a little bit bogged down in everything that's happening in the world and and the reality is that, you know, just kind of do what makes you happy and where your job is and, and um, you can have more, you can have, from my experience in supply chains, you can have more impact as the cattle trader that is trading two animals a week um, than you can by talking about the sustainability issues because or the, the price of grain because of what's happening in the Ukraine. Like you, you will have more impact because you're a part of the supply chain than you will by observing the supply chain. Um, mm. But then the contradiction to myself is, is the fact that and this was just sort of leading into this conversation to have this podcast in the first place was that I think we're also naive about the global world and and the impact that these supply chains are actually having um, on Australia mm. to some extent. So it's a it's a massive ch- everything we do is obviously this. There's no correct answer, and I think that was really where I landed. Is there is no correct answer? Like your journey through life, like it's there's no correct answer for that. Uh, you just yeah. keep making it up as you go. When we're talking about ag, yeah, you could you could take any any single route you wanted to, um, and they're all probably as correct or incorrect as the other route that you didn't take. Uh, so don't worry about that. Just keep going with what you're doing and be proud of the impact or or the decisions that you're making. And if you're not proud of it, then you probably should be doing something else. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Mm. And I think the thing is, like, as long as you kind of, uh, like, I just reckon the one thing which, and I know like you jotted down your values and stuff, but one piece which I just love is like curiosity. And it's like, I find it so often when I'm chatting with mates and things, it's like, well, actually, I don't know, like I'm, I am a walking contradiction in terms of I work in agriculture, but I always think about like, oh, like imagine if the, if the science was actually being misled by multinationals, I was like, imagine that. And I was like, no, nah, actually, you know what? My trust is that they're doing the right thing. And then it's like, like, and it's the question, but I think that's just it, being yeah interested enough to go like, well, actually, I'm going to go and find people that I can ask those questions of. And it's like this live export space, which you work in. Like, I'll put my hand up and say, I know absolutely very little of it. But conversations, um, one yesterday, one a couple of weeks ago, and like people just going back, well, they're like, actually, it's a humanitarian piece when you look at it. And it's about food security in developing countries. And I was like, yeah. Like when, when you start to boil it down, it's like, it's actually very simple. Yeah. I, look, I think life can be as simple as, or as complex as we want to make it, I guess is probably what yeah. I was saying in that, that last rant. But uh, the, um, yeah, I, look, I, I, it's, it's not a sort of bad segue 
into live export anyway, Ollie. And I think that's probably yeah. what you're trying to do. Um, so we'll, we'll run with it. But uh, yeah, so that just just to to catch the the viewers up, the listeners as well. <laughs> after after sort of traveling around a fair amount. I continue to travel, but uh, I got mixed up in the live export space. So I moved back to Perth actually for a few years and was protocoling livestock to mainly the Middle East. So both cattle and sheep to the Middle East became very, very good at bleeding cattle. Um, and uh, if, if Mick Hopper ever listens to this, I, I, I did hold the record um, on him for, for how many cattle it was a day. I, I can't actually remember the number now, but it was over a thousand head. So that was... Uh, that was that was pretty pretty rapid. Um, bleeding. What was that that you're doing? Just you bleeding, bleeding cattle, so tail bleeding cattle for for a protocol for for sending the animals over to over overseas. Um, but it was it was yeah, interesting right. getting involved in that trade. I then um, chased girls after a rugby tour um, over to Europe and uh, and started doing some consultancy work and, and ended up picking up a job with Meat and Livestock Australia in in Vietnam uh, and and lived there and then. Well, we finally got to your question. What that question was, what, 15 minutes ago, wasn't it? I think, Ollie, but uh, finally, nah, finally answered your see, question how I got to Singapore. Um, mate, and all, then... all I'm seeing in front of me is just this map of the world. <laughs> like, I don't, your parents would have been flat out trying to keep up with yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> well, they, I think they, they both enjoyed it because they had an excuse to, to get around and, and travel a bit. Um, and, yeah. and dad especially enjoys traveling. So uh, it was a good excuse for them to, to get around, but they also hated it because I wasn't at home. Um, so... Uh, yeah, there's always goods and goods and, and bads with every decision. Every decisions we make. So Vietnam. Yeah. So you you fell in love and and took took a lady with you to Vietnam. Or yeah. Was she a Vietnam? No, she was she's Swiss. Uh, so she came with me um, to Vietnam, and uh, she was pregnant at the time. So she she was a flight attendant, left left her job, and we moved to Vietnam together, and uh, and started work, that work with Meat and Livestock Australia. Um, but uh, yeah, in, in terms of um, expectations, uh, I'd sort of just come out off of a, a big floating, a period of floating around and just uh, had a little bit of money saved. So I was not really dependent on money, which is, was a luxurious place to be in. And then to take a salary position for a large organisation. Um, but then also to then, and, and not really know what it was like to work for an organisation or a government or anything with with that sort of level of bureaucracy and uh, and um, structure uh, and so but then to go to Vietnam and uh, on the first day that I was in market so it would have been about the second week on the job I think um, but the first day in market was 2015 and and the first incident was reported about sledgehammer use in in Vietnamese abattoirs so um, we were driving around meeting people in Vietnam. Uh, me, I travelled a fair amount, but I hadn't worked worked with travel, um, so well, not properly. Uh, so I, uh, it, it was kind of a bit of a baptism of fire to suddenly be uh, exposed to the the fact that the market could shut tomorrow, and uh, there might not even be a trade to Vietnam, and you can pack your bags and we'll move you somewhere else. Sort of thing was just yeah. pretty confronting, but it was also a pretty sort of good. Uh, there's nothing nothing better than than hitting probably the worst uh, potential incident that could could happen to you while you're on the job on on your first week because you especially I was I was fortunate to have Al Lugsden who I was taking over from and has, was with Meat and Livestock Australia for 253 years and uh, was really lucky that 
that he was there with me to sort of provide that mentorship and, and support because uh, he's a really cool, cool head and, and um, very, uh, again, very knowledgeable about how to deal with these sorts of things. So it was, it was great to, to be with him and just see how he covers things because if you haven't really gathered already from this conversation, I'm, I'm not frantic, but uh, I've got plenty going in my head and, 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 and plenty, of, plenty of energy. So um, was your area in, were you responsible for animal welfare? Like yeah, in, so that, that's why I took country? it. So that's why I took it. That's sort of why yeah, I got wow. the job was at the time I was just about to finish my master's in animal welfare from Edinburgh University, uh, which I ended up completing on point of slaughter in Vietnamese abattoirs was what my dissertation was on. And uh, so I, I took that job and, and, wow. and animal, that was kind of, that was why I was brought in and, and kind of the job essentially was uh, to support exporters with their implementation of SCAS and, and um, how we can make sure that the abattoirs especially, but abattoirs and feedlots were, were maintaining you know, animal welfare expectations in, in overseas markets. So that was kind of why I was brought in and, and what I did for, for six years over the whole of Asia, um, not so much Indonesia, but, but uh not really at all Indonesia. They've got their own team, wonderful team there. And uh, but uh, yeah, the, the rest of Asia. So that was that was a, a big experience. I moved to Singapore actually. Again, coming back to the initial question, Singapore because I took a regional manager role at that point. So Singapore became that launch pad into the region to to go to all the other markets. Um, which the experience itself was was fascinating to understand how. Uh, different countries' supply chains work, which are all different, but again, pretty much the same. Just a, just just nuances. Uh, so to understand the nuances, but to also understand that the structures are very, very, very uh, similar um, means that you can go in and, and talk to these people, and and really at the end of the day, um, I guess bring it full circle back to you. Like it really just comes down to people at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah, and and how you work with people and. And who you meet, and meeting them at the right time, and reaching out to the right people at the right time, and uh, so timing and and relationships are really, at the end of the day, all you really need to to impact change or or to be in the right position to to be able to to make an impact, I guess. So that which, like, to be honest, I actually don't know a whole lot about the sledgehammer incident and. And the flow on effects from that but so you're an australian working for an australian business that's got people employed in the the region to make make sure that the animals are treated correctly but like what what was happening and what were the conversations on the ground there with the local people and how, like how do you even approach a situation like that so that i guess there's a lot of levels to it the, the exporters um at that time uh, were visiting the market and had some oversight of the market. It, it changed the dynamics of the market itself, especially from 2015, that there was a significant step up in their their, st- their own local staff that, that were present and, and visiting facilities. Uh, it also changed the way the exporters were interacting in the market and it added a lot more technology. So from that, there was CCTVs added to, to facilities, the traceability and control um, of those livestock, so the ability to monitor them and in, a, in an ongoing way, um, yeah, like the, the level of that traceability increased significantly. Um, so from, a, from an oversight and control perspective, there were a lot more people in the market 
than probably the first couple of days that I was there. And that, that changed quite yeah. quickly, uh, which meant a lot of the interaction was, was uh, required to be working with the people in market. But um, as human beings, we are trying to solve our own problems. And, and it, it, it became really challenging because the exporters were all rushing to solve problems within their own supply chains. And, uh, and I was kind of sitting there going, like, I want to help and coordinate because you're duplicating or because there's, you know, um, there's a way that we can do this that provides some sort of broader oversight that isn't just you fixing your problem. Um, but mm. it's, it's really challenging. It's, it's cha- it, was, it was really challenging. I was, I was somewhat locked out of the support of the market to do that um, at an early stage because they were just doing so much work just to fix up uh, their own supply chains and, and doing good, good work. I'm not saying it was, they were, they yeah. were covering up anything. It's, it's, they were doing good work, but it, was, it was, became challenging for me to work out how I can work within other companies to um, move it forward. And um, I still don't know if I've really found the answer, but, but that's just, I think, in the sort of roles that I take and the way I work is just a constant challenge. So how do you, how do you work with a, and the other time, the other stage was working with both the Australian and, and Vietnamese government to, um, you know, understand that we had a problem in your country. <laughs> so yeah. as Australia, we have a problem and can you help us? And they're like, well, we're still struggling to, to get our own market under control. We, we can't really address your problem. So, um, mm-hmm. so that, that was all of that's just, just really fascinating to understand different motivations and how those motivations impact on their ability to, to, to talk to you, their willingness to talk to you and deal with you and, and trying to um, bring that all together in a meaningful way, both personally, but obviously for, for impact within the market. And, uh, and look, we were, we were eventually able to do that. Um, but as, as with all avenues of agriculture, but especially when we're talking about livestock, there will always be issues, there, there, and there will we will never mm. we will never get over that. And uh, and jumping forward a few years, um, I left the MLA April last year at the height of Delta, which was a terrible time to leave. But uh, uh, that's kind of why I left was was because I wanted to have a wider impact within the region, not just for Australian cattle within SCAS supply chains. I, there was there's there's local animals that also need to be slaughtered correctly. There's pigs that. Um, are also being killed uh, inhumanely and and slaughter I guess is is a bit of a focus for me and and something that I'm I'm both technically good at and and somewhat passionate passionate about making sure that we can improve that and uh, so the last twelve months for me has been working out how we can um, you know how I can actually have those impact in the supply chains because again all the NGOs are off doing their own thing because of their own motivations the governments want everything fixed but don't have any money or or ability to structure a program to to be able to impact smallholder farmers, which they're not really regulating properly, et cetera. Like it's just, there's just lots yeah. of lots of challenges in the region, which is why I uh, get energized um, some days and and fall into a hole on other days because it, 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 it becomes overwhelming at times, especially when, to your point before, like also trying to run a business on top of that is, uh, yeah, yeah, because you've got to actually put food on the table. And solve some pretty big challenges yeah like yeah 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 so it, i guess that for me that the i that i've got to balance because i i do see these big pictures and what it can look like in the future and everything and then to go back to that 
um, I've stolen this. I feel like I've, I've, I'm owning this now, but go back to the, to just looking five meters ahead and a one meter ahead and, and do that job um, and get through that and, and understand how the bigger picture looks. Uh, so that's my challenge. Um, mm. uh, my other big challenge is, is listening. Like I've always had an issue with listening. Uh, my brain's so far ahead that um, I'm, I kind of have already worked out what the person's sentence is before they finished it. And, and so I, I have, <laughs> I have personally have issues with cutting people off and, and other things. And, and I don't know, this whole life journey has been interesting to as much to work out my inadequacies as, as try to solve problems for other people. Um, so I don't know, that's been, that's been fun for me to, to really work out what my big weaknesses are. And I think uh, by setting up a business for yourself, it's a, it's a pretty surefire way to, to work out what you're good and not good at pretty quickly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And work out what gets on your nerves <laughs> and what's going to be, what's going to be positive and what's going to be, what's positive in terms of, yeah, like I, I backed myself there. I've been like, you're blindsided by what you reckon's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, similar to you earlier, like my IT manager is the, is terrible. Like they don't, they don't do any of the, the stuff, like my bookwork, like my bookkeeper. Yeah. He's terrible as well. Um, but the problem is that I'm just complaining to myself constantly because I'm in charge of all those <laughs> responsibilities at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the big boss comes and talks to exactly you in the mirror. Oh, it's terrible. That's the worst. <laughs> when you get called up, there's nothing worse than being called up by the big boss and then having to explain yourself. Uh, what is this like on a, on a, on a Friday? <laughs> exactly. Can't we just sit down? So, can't we sit down and just have a beer together? All right. Oh, okay. All right. All right. We'll do it. We'll do it casually then. Okay. <laughs> so why why this animal welfare space for you? Why are you so passionate about it to the point of? like doing a master's in animal welfare through Edinburgh Uni, shifting kind of what were the early career ambitions of small vet, large animals into like a really specialised niche space in terms of global animal welfare standards, particularly in developing countries? I never had an intention to do it and um, probably never would have thought I would ever get into this sort of space. Uh, I think... For better or worse, the words animal welfare probably have have not a great connotation. Um, and there's some amazing work done at that advocacy level for, for the welfare and, and rights of animals, and it needs to happen. Uh, we need to be respectful of the animals that are in our care. And um, uh, for me, I guess uh, there was a lot being done to, to try to respect animals and it sort of leans into what's happening with old proteins at the moment. But um, there's, there's a lot done to, to try to demonstrate that we're respecting animals by moving away from farming them. And I guess I've always been reasonably practical and pragmatic about it. And I could see that while that, that is good and there's, I think really um, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I definitely, am not against uh, or proteins or cellular or any of that sort of stuff. I think there's, we need to be eating in developed countries, probably need to be eating less meat. Um, and, uh, but the reality is that in a lot of these developing countries, they're eating more meat and they're going to keep eating more meat and they've got a bigger population guys. So the reality is that there are going to be more animals farmed uh, or a need to continue farming animals for at least my lifetime. Uh, so I can only impact what happens in my lifetime. Um, and uh, so if, if I could have a, 
a positive impact for the lives of those animals in a really practical way. And that was kind of where I, I lent into. And when I started doing the masters, I was probably a little bit nervous because I felt a little bit out of water, even during the course, because everybody doing the course was very much around, you know, how do we do this course? Cause it was, it was sort of six or so years ago when they'd really just started, I think it was the second or third intake. And, uh, and, and the people doing it were very, a lot of them were focused on, uh, the barbarity of specific trades or actions, you know, bare bowl trades or clumping seals or, or whatever it was. And, um, dog meat trades and and uh, and that's good and i think it's great that those those people exist in the world but um there wasn't a lot of people that were looking at farm animal welfare in terms of how do we actually get out there and improve it uh and i think it's still a massive gap we've, we've got a lot of people that are, are doing research on it and we're very knowledgeable about what causes stress and um uh, I think there needs to be more people out there that are actually going out and fixing problems, like physically holding stunners and teaching people how to physically use the stunner uh, or physically training them. And, and um, it's a difficult thing to do. I guess I just wanted, I could see that there was opportunity there to have impact. And the more I've spent in the space, um, I sort of tried to get out of it when I first set up my business, but it just keeps drawing me back again, um, to be honest, Ollie, because it's just, I guess it's rewarding. I, I kind of call it my passion project. I might probably make my money off of other other networks and, and influences in the region, but uh, it's it's kind of my passion project because I think the need to respect animals is, is, is there. Um, uh, just to finish off my rant, I guess, like with... with um, with with the uh, uh, like, I'm not really ideal ideological so much. Um, I I think with so I'm happy to eat meat. I definitely eat meat, um, even though I've seen how these animals are uh, raised and slaughtered in in some situations. Uh, but the uh, as a consumer, it's so difficult to understand what we're eating. So. I think everybody wants to eat ethical meat, but we're so detached from our supply chains. How can a consumer make a good decision? There are so many schemes out there that, you know, if you wanted to pick the eyes out of it or, or, or really sort of scrutinise them, it's very difficult to work out what is a good scheme and what's not a good scheme. Um, so for as a consumer level, that whole integrity is so difficult. And there's lots of marketing programs out there that are trying to market better animals and they have impact uh, and they're good, but... Um, that needs to be un underpinned by something. And I guess to the consumers out there, the best thing you can do regarding respect of animals is, is I guess, respect what you're purchasing, what you have purchased. So yes, buy your schemes, buy your whatever, whatever you think is the best thing because of the research you've done or because the label claims are claiming what they're claiming. So do that with the best conscious that you can. But after, you can, after you've purchased that product, you know, treat it with respect, understand that it's come from an animal and don't buy a 500 grand piece of steak and eat half of it. Um, don't buy some chicken and then, you know, feed it to the dog uh, unless that was specifically why you were buying the chicken in the first place uh, to, to put it back in the supply. So, like, just acknowledge that that these these products have come from animals and let's not waste waste the the products that they've given us i guess um that's my take mm. on it and if that's my take then it kind of then frees me up to just want to make a better impact that those animals have a good life uh as much as i possibly can and i can only do my little bit so 
um, I'll do my bit as much as I possibly can. Yeah, buddy. Uh, no, that's bang on, isn't it? <laughs> With like living in in Asia, like say specifically in Vietnam, like what what were you learning as a consumer in there? Like, were you shopping at wet markets? Like, how? I'm not a great. What was life I'm, like? I'm not a great shopper, Ollie. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I love sitting at pla- plastic stools and and sitting uh, by, by the side of the road. So in, in Vietnam, the well, I'm going to say traditionally, historically, the the system and the reason we even love export to Vietnam is because the consumers are, are have been buying from wet markets. So they want the meat, the animal killed the night before, processed, and then um, purchased and, and eaten that day. Basically, uh, they have refrigeration, they have access to supermarkets and everything. There's no issue there with with the infrastructure in place. They're not buying it from a you know, because uh, they're basic people. Anyone that's been to Vietnam knows it's a very developed and, and rapidly changing developing market So, uh, country. So there's there's no real limitations there. The reason they do it is because, um, you know, this inertia bias that we all have, that we do what we've always done and what our people before us have done. And, and so they've always bought at wet markets because that's what the product looks like and how it's presented to me. And that's what I recognise and understand. And so that's what they've always done. Um so we were we have been exporting live animals there basically because of that. There's not enough cattle in in the region, and Australian cattle are larger and um, consistent, and we're at a good price, and uh, not so such a good price at the moment, but have been traditionally at a really good price, and uh, and therefore it could hit that wet market consumer market. Uh, what we're actually seeing, and and I guess I can't even remember what your question is, but uh, what what we're kind of saying, Ollie, is is that that changes that can change um we've seen it in the middle east a lot with the way they're they're buying and and now consuming um the the sheep and goat meat and uh we've seen it in um indonesia and now vietnam covid meant that there was a lot of lockdowns and so consumers weren't even allowed to leave the house for for about a six-month period and during that six months especially in ho chi minh the consumers couldn't get down to the wet market to, to buy their product. And so they had to buy frozen product. So that kind of introduced them to the concept that frozen is okay uh, and they can use it. So it'd be interesting to see now what that means for the market transitioning forward. Is that, was that a long enough period for consumers to completely have shifted their behaviors to, to buying frozen, mm-hmm. either ordered in or, or uh, online or, or going to a supermarket and buying frozen or do they shift back to the wet market again and, and that establishes? We haven't had enough time to see how that happens, but just seeing some of those dynamic shifts um, now is fascinating. And even going back and looking at it when I was there, the, the impact that the Australian animals had even on the supply chain and have had for the last six years that they've been in Vietnam. So when I went there, most abattoirs killed maybe five head a night or five head a week. Uh, and very really basic systems. They were they were tethered with ropes to a pole, hit with sledgehammer. Since the Australian animals have been there, because of SCAS and because they can't really be tethered, even if they were allowed to be, um, you've had they've had to build boxes. They've had to build restraint boxes. Um, as I said before, it's now led to CCTV cameras and like every animal's individually, a photo is taken of every animal at point of slaughter to make sure that that animal is killed at, an, at their registered abattoir and. Like there's a lot of sophistication there. Stunners have obviously been introduced throughout the whole market now. And um, and so there's been a, a massive change. I'm actually personally going to process a, a cow in Vietnam next week to, to see if I can 
package it and, and sell it into the market as as uh, vacuum pack products as a, like a natural fall type product to, to 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 see if we can start really edging that market into a into a value added type um, you know keep that progression going keep that uh, development going um, and as I said before cool. and the reason I'm doing that is because when you have direct contact and impact within a market then you can actually start changing things. Um, yeah. You can't do it by telling somebody to do it. And I've tried to. I've tried to tell people to do this forever. But once you actually start doing it yourself and take that risk, then you can actually start physically impacting things. That's bloody cool. I'm, I'm throwing in a question here because I feel like it's very applicable. So it came from a previous guest and it, I'm changing it on you. So <laughs> th- this is really interesting in the space you're working with and how you talk about the impact you're having at like a local level and really making changes. So this question came from someone who's pretty incredible on the podcast recently. Um, what are you doing to help make the world a better place? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. Some days I don't know if I am, Ollie. Um, I guess at the end of the day, I, I'm just trying to do my little bit. I, I, I don't know if I could answer that any, any more succinctly. I definitely haven't answered any of your other questions succinctly, but uh, <laughs> the um, I think just understanding that I've got my little, my little job that I can do. Um, and, and I try to do that, wake up every morning, try to work out. I, that's really it kind of, to be honest, just waking up every morning and working out what do I need to do today to move that bar forward a little bit um, uh, is, 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 yeah, is probably my answer to be honest. So I think we compete too much in this space. I think we're, Coming back to my LinkedIn answer before, like my social media answer, I think we're so busy trying to compete with each other for who has the most likes or the most friends or the who has done the most impact. Um, I think we need mm. there needs to be more genuine, uh, uh, you know, acknowledgement and celebration of people that have done that have had impact and done things rather than celebrating them so that you get your post up so somebody can like your post and see that you are a good person. I think. I think we need to, mm. and maybe maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just reflecting on my own inadequacies that that I need to work on more. But um, I think all we can do is our little bit, our little bit. And as a consumer, if you're not directly in ag, coming back to to my point before, then just respect respect the animals uh, for other people. Mm. For me, I'm obviously very fortunate through the decisions that I may or may not have made to have landed where I am now, and uh, and I can directly have impacts where I can, um, as much as I can. And I'm not by any means trying to pretend that I'm, I'm uh, saving the world or, or um, you know, out there every single day things are changing just because I'm around. But uh, if I can just change, you know, improve things just my little bit, then that's all I can do. It's a job done. Job done. I reckon we could do some uh, like day in the life or just like perspectives from you on the ground. It'd just be fascinating to see yeah, what you're up to. And I, like, I just reckon it'd be so interesting. It's, it's worlds away from the tiny little area that I work in, but it, it's fascinating like, just listening to you talk about it. All. So it's, the, the funny thing on that is now you've mentioned it, uh, no, that I've, I've definitely pitched my TV show to, to all my really supportive friends. And, and that's another thing that I probably, to anyone out there, can I jump forward and, and answer your 10-year-old 10-year-old question? But just surround yourself with good people is really 
really um, any advice I give to anybody surrounding yourself with good people, but the good people around me have constantly told me that it's a terrible idea and, and, uh, and nobody wants to, wants to see what I do on a daily basis because, um, uh, yeah, the realities of that are probably not, not as exciting as, as probably what you've got in your head. Um, maybe similar to your, uh, your trip to, well, I've heard actually others on this podcast that have, have talked about their, um, of their life journeys and their ambitions to, you know, be a McLeod's daughter and other things. And, uh, and, <laughs> and um, uh, it's, it's never really uh, what you have in your mind. Um, no, it's, it's pretty, just pretty much a daily grind, Ollie, just to try, to try to find the right people at the right time that you can say the right thing and something changes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but I'm happy if there's any TV producers out there, Let's get onto it. Yeah. Let's get onto it. Give me a call. Well, yeah, that'd be interesting for sure. <laughs> What's, um, I reckon we nearly, well, I, I think there's so much to, that we could chat about that we might nearly have to come back and, and chat to you again. Maybe see, do the business check-in. I'd love to. Small business. I'd love to, Ollie. Yeah. I, I, I actually feel for any of the listeners because I don't think they actually understand what I do or where I've come from at all. I feel like I've jumped around so much that it, it's just been so, uh, so chaotic. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> What's a question you'd like me to ask a future guest off of that? Or oh, uh, yeah, yeah, and you, you'd actually even prepped me with this question, and now I'm still stumped with it. But um, I guess because of the range of guests you have, I, I generally would like to know um, maybe what essential part of their ag job would they replace with tech or 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 with some sort of innovation? Like I'm, I'm big in. In making our lives easier um if we can and so i guess if there's what out there what out there could they could they replace or would like to see some sort of you know you talked before about dreaming that how about we build build this thing like i've got all these amazing dreams about robotic arms stunning animals rather than having people need to do it and it'll be I don't, again if anyone's got money please come give me a call and uh i can we can talk about innovation to the end of end of the days but uh the um yeah what what would they replace out of their job yeah that's a good question i'll um have to think who i've got coming up that i can ask that to all right maybe i'll ask it to a few different ones ask it to like just an, an office person would be interesting yeah just some <laughs> but no i've got um i've got a few actually pretty interesting farmers and, and other people coming up as well so i reckon that's a good one yeah because i think with um, especially within what you're doing there's a lot of like good news stories and, and you're obviously celebrating a lot of people that are different parts of the ag, ag system but uh i mm. think it's also pretty good to acknowledge the bits that we hate about <laughs> ag too that are that are kind of Definitely. really really uh are things that we'd like to get rid of so i'm not talking about and for anyone that is going to get this question in the future it can't be it can't be the bookwork or the or the you know the legal or something like that's that. That's what I was thinking. Okay, so it's a, it's a monotonous task. <laughs> yeah. It'll be... Oh, I can't be. Look, they can, they can take it how they want. <laughs> yeah, well, can't, well, you can't be a fruit picker. You can't be a fruit picker. Oh, you can't be a fruit picker and then cut out fruit picking. That That's that's just cheating. That means you don't enjoy what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, mate. Well, I reckon um, it's a fascinating space you work in and I reckon you come at it with such a unique perspective of doctor, vet, animal welfare, footy player and coach. And, and well, I think there's so many different elements that we, 
could have talked about. But I reckon, yeah, I reckon it's been a good chat and I'd love to check back in in a little bit and um, maybe go version two. No worries. We'll see. We'll see what your uh, your viewers say first. Ollie, how many how, how many <laughs> likes can you get before you give me a call again? But uh, yeah, no worries. It's been a really really nice to talk to you. If you're enjoying tuning into the Humans of Agriculture podcast, we would love for you guys to rate and review it and share it with some friends. There's so many incredible stories of all types of people involved in agriculture, and we love sitting down with new, interesting, and exciting people every single week. Keep your eyes peeled, head over to our socials, and if you haven't checked out our Facebook community, just search Humans of Agriculture, our community. Jump on in and join it, because that's where we'll keep the conversation going. Look after yourself, stay safe, stay sane, and can't wait to sit down with you again.